0: Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer that today, you? didn't you? you tried. How I'll do, do the dead, long dead long. come back, mother? Didn't you? You What's died. the secret? A Pair of Muddy Shoes by Lennox Robinson I'm going to try and write it down quite simply, just as it happened. I shall try not to exaggerate anything. I'm 22 years old. My parents are dead. I have no brothers or sisters. The only near relation I have is Aunt Margaret, my father's sister. She's unmarried and lives alone in a little house in the country in the west of County Cork. She's kind to me, and I often spend my holidays with her, for I am poor and have few friends. I am a schoolteacher. That is to say, I teach drawing and singing. I'm a visiting teacher at two or three schools in Dublin. I make a fair income, enough for a single woman to live comfortably off, but father left debts behind him, and until these are paid off, I have to live very simply. I suppose I ought to eat more and eat better food. People sometimes think I'm nervous and highly strung. I look rather fragile and delicate, but really I'm not. I have slender hands with pale tapering fingers. This sort of hands that people call artistic. I hoped very much that my aunt would invite me to spend Christmas with her. I happened to have very little money. I'd paid off a rather big debt of poor father's, and that left me very short, and I felt rather weak and ill. I didn't quite know how I'd get through the holidays unless I went down to my aunt's. However, ten days before Christmas, the invitation came. You may be sure I accepted it gratefully. And when my last school broke up on the 20th, I packed my trunk, gathered up the old sentimental songs Aunt Margaret likes best, and set off for Ross Patrick. It rains a great deal in West Cork in the winter. It was raining when Aunt Margaret met me at the station. It's been a terrible month, Peggy, she said, as she turned the pony's head into the long road that runs for four muddy miles from the station to Ross Patrick. I think it's rained every day for the last six weeks, and the storms! We lost a chimney two days ago, it came through the roof and let the rain into the ceiling of the spare bedroom. I've had to make you up a bed in the lumber room till Jeremiah Driscoll can be got to mend the roof. I assured her that any place would do me. All I wanted was her society and a quiet time. I can guarantee you though. she said. Indeed, you look tired. You look as if you're just after a bad illness or just before one. That teaching's killing you. That lumber room was really very comfortable. It was a large room with two big windows. It was on the ground floor. And Aunt Margaret had never used it as a bedroom because people are often afraid of sleeping on the ground floor. We stayed up very late talking over the fire. Aunt Margaret came with me to my bedroom. She stayed there for a long time, fussing about the room, hoping I'd be comfortable, pulling about the furniture, looking at the bedclothes. At last I began to laugh at her, Why shouldn't I be comfortable? Think of my horrid little bedroom in Brunswick Street. What's wrong with this room? Nothing, nothing, she said rather hurriedly, and kissed me, and left me. I slept very well. I never opened my eyes till the maid called me, and then, after she had left me, I dozed off again. I had a ridiculous dream. I dreamed I was interviewing a rich old lady. She offered me a thousand a year and comfortable rooms to live in. My only duty was to keep her clothes from moths. She had quantities of beautiful, costly clothes, and she seemed to have a terror of them being eaten by moths. I accepted her offer at once. I remember saying to her gaily, the work will be no trouble to me. I like killing moths. It was strange I should say that, because I really don't like killing moths. I hate killing anything. But my dream was easily explained but when I woke a second later, as it seemed, I was holding a dead moth between my finger and thumb. It disgusted me just a little bit of that dead moth pressed between my fingers, but I dropped it quickly, jumped up, and dressed myself. Aunt Margaret was in the dining room and full of profuse and anxious inquiries about the night I'd spent. I soon relieved her anxieties, and we laughed together of my dream and the new position I was going to fill. It was very wet all day, and I didn't stir out of the house. I sang a great many songs. I began a pencil drawing of my aunt, a thing I'd been meaning to make for years. But I didn't feel well. I felt headachey, and nervous. Just from being in the house all day, I suppose. I felt the greatest disinclination to go to bed. I felt afraid. I don't know of what. Of course, I didn't say a word of this to Aunt Margaret. That night, the moment I fell asleep, I began to dream. I thought I was looking down at myself from a great height. I saw myself in my nightdress crouching in the corner of the bedroom. I remember wondering why I was crouching there. And I came nearer and looked at myself again. And then I saw that it wasn't myself that crouched there. It was a large white cat. It was watching a mouse hole. I was relieved and I turned away as I did so. I heard the cat spring. I started round. It had a mouse between its paws and looked up at me, growling as a cat does. Its face was like a woman's face. It was like my face. Probably that doesn't sound at all horrible to you, but it happens that I have a deadly fear of mice. The idea of holding one between my hands and putting my mouth to one, of, oh, I can't even bear to write it. I think I woke screaming. I know when I came to myself, I jumped out of bed and was standing on the floor. I lit the candle and searched the room. In one corner were some boxes and trunks. There might have been a mouse hole behind them, but I hadn't the courage to pull them out and look. I kept my candle lighted Instead, awake all night. The next day was fine and frosty. I went for a long walk in the morning and for another in the afternoon. When bedtime came, I was very tired and sleepy. I went to sleep at once and slept dreamlessly all night. It was the next day that I noticed my my hands getting queer. Queer perhaps isn't the right word, for of course cold does roughen and coarsen the skin, and the weather was frosty enough to account for that. But it wasn't only that the skin was rough. The whole hand looked larger, stronger, not like my own hand. How ridiculous this sounds, but the whole story's ridiculous. I remember once when I was a child at school, putting on another girl's boots by mistake one day. I had to go about till evening in them, and I was perfectly miserable. I couldn't stop myself from looking at my feet, and they seemed to me to be the feet of another person. That sickened me. I don't know why. I felt a little like that now when I looked at my hands. Aunt Margaret noticed how rough and swollen they were and she gave me cold cream, which I rubbed on them before I went to bed. I lay awake for a long time. I was thinking of my hands. I didn't seem to be able not to think of them. They seemed to grow bigger and bigger in the darkness. They seemed monstrous hands, the hands of some horrible ape. They seemed to fill the whole room. Of course, if I had struck a match and lit the candle, I'd have calmed myself in a minute. But frankly. I hadn't the courage. When I touched one hand with the other, it seemed rough and hairy like a man's. At last I fell asleep. I dreamed that I got out of bed and opened the window. For several minutes I stood looking out. It was bright moonlight and bitterly cold. I felt a great desire to go for a walk. I dreamed that I dressed myself quickly, put on my slippers and stepped out of the window. The frosty grass crunched under my feet. I walked, it seemed, for miles along a road I never remember being on before. It led uphill. I met no one as I walked. Presently, I reached the crest of a hill, and beside the road, in the middle of a bare field, stood a large house. It was a gaunt, three-storied building. There was an air of decay about it. Maybe it had once been a gentleman's place and was now occupied by a herd. There are many places like that in Ireland. In a window of the highest story, there was a light. I decided I would go to the house and ask the way home. A gate closed the grass-grown avenue from the road. It was fastened, and I could not open it. So I climbed it. It was a high gate, but I climbed it easily, and I remember thinking in my dream, if this wasn't a dream, I could never climb it so easily. I knocked at the door And after I had knocked again, the window of the room in which the light shone was opened, and a voice said, Who's there? What do you want? It came from a middle-aged woman with a pale face and dirty strands of grey hair hanging about her shoulders. I said, Come down and speak to me. I I want to know the way back to Ross Patrick. I had to speak two or three times to her, but at last she came down and opened the door mistrustfully. She only opened it a few inches and barred my way. I asked her the road home and she gave me directions in a nervous, startled way. Then I dreamed that I said, let me in to warm myself. It's late, you should be going home. But I laughed and suddenly pushed at the door with my foot and slipped past her. I remember she said, my God, in a helpless, terrified way. It was strange that she should be frightened and I, a young girl, all alone in a strange house with a strange woman, Miles from anyone I knew should be not frightened at all. As I sat warming myself by the fire while she boiled the kettle, for I had asked for tea, and watching me, her timid, terrified movements, the queerness of the position struck me, and I said, laughing, You seem afraid of me. Not at all, miss, she replied, in a voice, which almost trembled. You needn't be. There's not the least occasion for it, I said, and I laid my hand on her arm. She looked down at it as it lay there and said again, "'Oh, my God!' and staggered back against the range. And so for half a minute we remained. Her eyes were fixed on my hand, which lay on my lap. It seemed she could never take them off it. "'What is it?' I said. "'You've the face of a girl,' she whispered, "'and, God help me, the hands of a man!' I looked down at my hands. They were large, strong, and sinewy, covered with coarse red hairs. Strange to say, they no longer disgusted me. I was proud of them, proud of their strength and the power that lay in them. Why should they make you afraid, I asked. They're fine hands, strong hands. But she only went on staring at them in a hopeless, frozen way. Have you ever seen such strong hands before? I smiled at her. They're... they're Ned's hands, she said at last, speaking in a whisper. She put her own hand to her throat as if she were choking, and the fastening of her blouse gave way. It fell open. She had a long throat. It was moving as if she were finding it difficult to swallow. I wondered whether my hands would go round it. Suddenly I knew they would and I knew why my hands were large and sinewy. I knew why power had been given to them. I got up and caught her by the throat. She struggled so feebly, slipped down, striking her head against the range, slipped down the red-tiled floor, and lay quite still. But her throat still moved under my hand, and I never loosened my grasp. And presently, kneeling over her, I lifted her head and bumped it gently against the flags of the floor. I did this again and again, lifting it higher and striking it harder and harder until it was crushed in like an egg. And she lay still. She was choked and dead. And I left her lying there and ran from the house, and as I stepped onto the road, I felt rain in my face. The thaw had come. But when I woke, it was morning. Little by little, my dream came back and filled me with terror. I looked at my hands. They were so tender and pale and feeble. I lifted them to my mouth and kissed them. But when Mary called me half an hour later, she broke into a long, excited story of a woman who had been murdered the night before. How the postman had found the door open and a dead body. And sure, miss, it was here she used to live long ago. She was near murdered once by her husband in this very room. He tried to choke her. She was half killed. That's why the mistress made it a lumber room. They put him in the asylum afterwards. A month ago he died there, I heard. My mother was Scottish and claimed she had the gift of prevision. It was evident she had bequeathed to me. I was enormously excited. I sat up in bed and told Mary my dream. She wasn't very interested. People seldom are in other people's dreams. Besides, she wanted, I suppose, to tell her news to Aunt Margaret. She hurried away. I lay in bed and thought it all over. I almost laughed. It was so strange and fantastic. But when I got out of bed, I stumbled over something. It was a little muddy shoe. At first I hardly recognised it, then I saw it was one of a pair of evening shoes I had. The other shoe lay near it. They were a pretty little pair of dark blue satin shoes. They were a present to me from a girl I loved very much. She had given them to me only a week ago. Last night they had been so fresh and new and smart. Now they were scratched, the satin cut, and they were covered with mud. Someone had walked miles in them and I remembered in my dream how I had searched for my shoes and put them on. Sitting on the bed, feeling suddenly sick and dizzy, holding the muddy shoes in my hand, I had in a blinding instant a vision of a red-haired man who lay in this room night after night for years, hating a sleeping white-faced woman who lay beside him. Longing for strength and courage to choke her. I saw him come back, years afterwards, Freed by death, to this room. Saw him seize on a feeble girl too weak to resist him. Saw him try her, strengthen her hands, And then, at last, through her, Accomplish his unfinished deed. The vision passed all in a flash as it had come. I pulled myself together, That is nonsense, impossible, I told myself. The murderer will be found before evening. But in my hand, I still held the muddy shoes. I seem to be holding them ever since. Everybody dies, don't they? That was a pair of muddy shoes by Lennox Robinson. Before I want to say anything about Lennox, as I know him, and his story, I want to say something about my microphone. I noticed that towards the end of that there was a kind of um a, a, a hiss rolling on or on and off the speech. and it was I, I recorded it during the heat wave, and I my recording area is at the top of the house, and there's no insulation, so the sun was just beating in. it was like an oven. Um, so I wonder if it has anything to do with that. Anyway, I have two microphones now. You may not be interested in this, but you may. The one I use mostly is the Rode Procaster, which is a dynamic mic, which basically just picks up what you say into it, so it cuts out a lot of background. They say that for the nuances, you want to use a, um, a what they call a condenser microphone, so I've got one of those which is more expensive than the uh, the road um, microphone Procaster, the Dynamic. And I'm using it now. What I found with that one was there was a hiss on that one as well. When I listen back, I can hear it. And so I wonder if it's something to do with my system, you know. So not, not the microphones, in fact, but something else in the chain. I don't know. I'll look into that. I hope it doesn't detract too much from your enjoyment of the story. So Lennox Robinson was born in West Cork, uh, in Ireland in 1886, and his father was a Protestant clergyman who'd uh, previously been a stockbroker, but obviously found religion and went to this remote rural parish uh, in Cork. His mother was Emily Jones. Anyway, so he was often ill as a child, and he was educated by private tutor and then went to a uh, a school funded by the Church of Ireland. Now, you may know or you may not know that the Church of Ireland is in fact the Protestant church. Uh, which is modelled after the Church of England. So it isn't actually in the South of Ireland. Even in the North of Ireland, it's not the majority church and never has been. Um so so that that means that he was what they call Anglo-Irish. And the they the Anglo-Irish were a legacy of British colonial rule in Ireland. Um and they were the the landowning classes who were English and Protestant, but a number of them like the Normans did in earlier years, became to feel very Irish. And so during the nationalist years, um, as these were, people like W.B. Yeats, who was also Anglo-Irish, and uh, Lady Gregory who were, were big Irish nationalists and patriots, you know. And th- that was also true for Lennox Robinson. So he began to write, and then he went to the Abbey Theatre in, uh, when he was 21, and saw a production by Yeats and Gregory, I think it was Kathleen the Houlihan, I think, when I was reading, and he was mesmerised by the theatre, and also the message, the romantic Irish past, and so he then, he wrote, he was known as one of the West Cork realist school, and Yeats said he was the best of them, so, so and that's evident in this, you know, it's written in a very naturalistic, realistic, conversational style, it's not it's not. Although you know, he admired the um, Irish mythology. There's nothing mythological about this. It's well. Well, actually, there is. But there's nothing mythological about the style. It's written in a very. You. You. Somebody you might. You know. Might be talking to you like this. I decided to do it in my native accent. This is a. This is a, a constant thing. I do. I like doing accents, and I'm relatively good at them. But I'm not perfect at them, particularly lots of them. And so. Um, there's always somebody who's offended by my accent. So I thought, well, I'll just do it in my native tone. So other people comment when I'd have my reading voice and then i have my talking voice. And this is sound a bit different. Well, hopefully this should sound a bit the same. The last one I did was the two-hour long, The Entrance by Gerald Durrell. And I, I actually put an accent on for that, which was my upper-class English accent. Uh, and I may or may not have been successful at that. Somebody will be the judge of it. But I thought I'd do a shorter one this time. So it, another point to note is that his 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 wife's mother, that is Lennox Robinson. He was actually known as Esme Stewart Lennox Robinson, but it, but you can see why he just chose to call himself Lennox. Or to his mates, I don't know. Probably Len. We don't know. Uh, Somebody'll know. He was uh, depressed a lot of the time, and he was an alcoholic. He wrote his first play in 1908 and, and by, uh, by 1909, only two years after he'd seen the Abbey Theatre in Dublin for the first time, he got his play um, produced there, and became manager there in 1909. He went to England for a three-month apprenticeship with a um, theatre in London and then he went on an American tour and I think he was uh, working with George Bernard Shaw but apparently this tour in 1914 was a great disaster and so he resigned. But he loved the theatre so much, he came back to it in 1919. And by 1923, he was appointed to the board of the Abbey Theatre and stayed there until his death. I was reading for my research, there was an, an article about him in the Irish Times, which you can find online. And uh, saying that, you know, he really needs to get more... I mean, we're all familiar with sing, and um, I never know if he's sing or Singe, to be fair, and some, somebody will correct me. I should know that, because I remember studying him at school and Sean O'Casey and people and Yates and people like that but you know Lennox Robinson ain't bad so it was nice to read this um, conversational tone also it's in a woman an Irish woman's voice and I read it as an English man so you know you know hopefully that won't upset anybody too much it will upset somebody because that's the nature of the internet isn't it somebody's going to be upset about something but not you not you you know you 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 know you and me we're like that uh, the, the, the other thing I'd say, and I'll say much about this story, is is the um, the big Irish house that j- is in the middle of a field. And I'm thinking of Craggy Island, I don't know if you know Father Ted, uh, but there we are, there's this um, huge house, big house, just no garden, no path, no nothing, just in the middle of a field. So that's what I saw uh, when I, when, I, when he was describing this house where the murder takes place. So it's a possession story, isn't it? And it's one of those lovely little twists at the end. The Muddy Shoe, of course, is the twist. It's all a dream. He sets us up with dreams. The weird dream about the woman offering her the, uh, the position, and then the weird dream about the cats, the white cats, who are all deaf. My mother has this theory about white cats, uh, that they're all deaf. And whenever I used to see a white cat, I remember doing this in uh, the Cotswolds uh, in Burford. We'd stayed in a place called the Lamb and Flag, and we went out the back and there was this white cat. And I said to my wife at the time I said this cat's deaf <laughs> because it was white so I walked around behind it to see if it heard me sneaking up on it But and it did so that proved it wasn't deaf so I went back to my mother and said you know your theory's not true but she won't have it she still to this day believes it, maintains that maintains all white cats are deaf which you know you can test that for yourself in a non-cruel way you know you, could, you don't want to shock them too much um, anyway I don't know where I came from that oh yeah the juxtaposition of her face on. This is the eerie, isn't it? But it's also a weird because the weird is the juxtaposition of things that shouldn't be there together. And the other thing, is, of course, is uh, she goes in and this woman sees her and goes, "You've got the face of a girl, but the hands of a man, a big, big ginger hands as well. All the better to strangle you with." So it is quite a little, well, horrible twist at the end. But it was good. It was I liked it. It was nicely written. Again, very straightforward. It sets us up with the dreams. First of all, is the intro. Poor lass has to go and stay with her aunt in the, in the wilds of County Cork and gets there, reads a story. Ooh, it's a bit spooky, that room. What's going on in that room? And then she has the weird dreams. And then we... So on the third dream, oh, this is just another dream. And then it turns out... Because we've already been introduced to the, uh, the garrulous maid as well. He says an interesting thing, which isn't true, in fact. People are really not interested in your dreams. I sometimes try and tell people about my dreams. And, uh, you know, to a man and woman, they're just not interested in my dreams at all. And yet they seem so important to me. While we're on an Irish theme, I, I've deleted TikTok from my phone because I've just spent Some of the things are very funny, but I was spending flipping hours going to, wasting my life. So uh, I don't know if I was saying I've designated because I've jacked in some of my private work. And I've designated—I've got a lot of books to read, and I've designated Tuesday as a reading day. And I had a lot of problems with that, but I've taught myself, that, or I've persuaded myself that read, having a reading day is a legit, I'm lucky enough to be able to have that, to be fair, but it's a legit, uh, you know, reading and literature, and I read non-fiction as well, I read a lot of books, um, as you would imagine, Is is part of my job, if you like. So I kind of persuaded myself it wasn't frivolous. But TikTok definitely was, so I deleted it. But before I deleted it, I ended up watching this stream of uh, stories about Irish people in the UK. This is this is the connection, and I never realised, but um, it is famous among Irish people that when they go to the UK, and I'm guessing America and Australia as well, uh, people always say to them, "I'm part Irish," you know, "my you know," and because everybody is in the English-speaking world, aren't they? Because of the great Irish diaspora. Um, and I so I used to say sometimes, you know, well my grandfather was Irish, which he was, that is to say I was adopted. So Walker isn't, isn't my biological name, if you can have such a thing. But uh, so my biological father's family they were in Scotland, but my granddad was from County Monaghan. Uh, and so, you know, the Irish are like, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, just all right. What are you doing claiming kinship? I remember when I, because I studied Irish at university, you know, for my first degree. And we'd read a book called Crenna set in Galway by a guy, a very good writer called Martín O'Kine. I think it's been translated into English now, but we read it in Irish, and it's written in Galway dialect. So it was really hard. But luckily the guy who taught me Irish was a specialist in the Galway dialect, uh, Richard Skerritt. Still alive, Dick Skerritt. And uh, he uh, he also taught me Scots Gaelic because he spent time up on the Isle of Lewis. So anyway... They called them, I remember a word, the, the Punkoni, I think that was it, the Punkoni, And they are the returned Irish who've gone away, typically to the US in that, but I guess it's from anywhere. And they come back. And I'm going to finish off with a little Cumbrian story related to that. So before I became a psychiatric nurse, I worked in, for the tourist board in Cumbria and in Wales, in fact, but this is about Cumbria. One of my jobs was to set up tourist local tourist groups of um, B&B owners and hoteliers and people with attractions, you know, uh, in, in the various areas. And we had to set up one in a place called Millham, which is a pretty remote uh, small town uh, on the edge of the Lake District. It's an hour from Barrow in furness and an hour from Whitehaven. So that means it's pretty remote. Anyway, we set this up. So we, we had the meeting and I'm sitting there and I go, right, well, we need to set this group up. So what we need is we need... Uh, a chair and a secretary, you know, the usual things, and a treasurer. So anyway, we get the volunteers. for This is going pretty well. And then some guy goes, um, he, says, ah, he says, but there's nobody from Millham in this group. Right, okay, because this was supposed to be the Millham. It was called the Black Coombe, in fact, that was a fancy name, the Millham Tourism Group. There's nobody from Millham in this group, he says. And one guy says, what, I'm from Haverig. Now, Haverig is a walk away from Millham. It's about 500 yards. Maybe quarter of a mile. That may be 500 yards. I have to work my yard, into miles. So he goes, I, he says, he says, I, but you're from Averig. So that didn't count. And then another guy said, well, What, what, Joe? He says, I'm from Milam. He says, I, but you've been away. So this young man made the crime of going and living somewhere else for a few years. And once he came back, he was never the same. He couldn't claim the the legitimate birthright of being a native of the place anymore because you went away. And that happened with me in Cumbria. I went away and lived elsewhere. So I've never been, even though my family had generations on my mother's side, generations unto generations, um, you know, never quite done the same thing. Another story is another showing the interrelatedness of our communities is um, my daughter Catherine is going out with a young lad called Matthew. And it turns out I was in the same class of school as, as Matthew's mother, and I went, oh, goodness me, Gillian, yeah, of course. And then it turns out even further that Matthew's grandmother was a playmate of my mother, Catherine's grandmother. That's the way it goes round here. Anyway, enough of that. I'm going to America on Tuesday. How about that? you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast Patreons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you so it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories and um there is a big on patreon there is a big uh, backlog of stories a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron you can download them as well which is more difficult on podcasts and on youtube but if you want to become a patron you get the double whammy of supporting my work which enables me to do more work imagine that you pay me to do more and i do more work for you and produce more stories for you which is and, and you know i appreciate it so you get my love and gratitude and also you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.